When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints all over the world. I'm Jared Halverson and I'm so grateful to be able to spend time with you each week in the scriptures. Honestly, I've been feeling a lot of gratitude for you all lately. As I've read more comments and been able to respond to some emails and comments and have some phone calls with new friends from all over the world, I, I'm just so impressed with amazing disciples of Jesus Christ. Your desire to immerse yourself in scripture, to share the gospel, I said I got a sweet uh, email from a, a senior couple that was heading off uh, as, as they were writing, heading off into the mission field and having just listened to the, the lesson from uh, section 30 to 36, all those wonderful missionary sections, sections, they just said, man, it felt like you were talking right to us. Well, now I actually am. Uh, but they were saying, we're, we're doing it. We're doing our victory lap. We want to put it on the back of the, of the RV, victory lap, because we're heading off to, to participate in one. Honestly, just amazing, amazing people. Makes me wish all the more that we were in one big classroom together so that the communication could go in both directions so that I could learn from you. I do get that chance when you make comments and, and, and send me notes and it's, it's amazing to just be a part of this circle of saints. I love that phrase in the Book of Mormon about the, the teacher was no better than the learner and they just all came together to, to discuss the things of God and then they went off their separate ways to, to go live what they've been learning. And I feel that way. Uh, as soon as the, the video is done and I send it out, uh, then I'm off back to my, my day job uh, of teaching my students at the Institute. And you're off to do your, to your, your day jobs. But here we are just all trying our best to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again, my, my gratitude to you, my hats off to each of you. I hope that you feel of my love for the Lord, but also my love for you. Uh, the beautiful thing about being a teacher is it puts you right in the crosshairs of the two great commandments where you really are giving your heart, mind, and soul to, to the Lord and loving God, but also loving your students, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so I hope that you all feel of that love. Today, speaking of love, I love the section that we get to cover today. And honestly, I'm very grateful that we only have one. We've had a lot of material that we've been working through the last couple of weeks. Long videos. Uh, and so if you've been bearing with me, bless you for that. Uh, today, just one revelation, section 45. But what a masterpiece it is. I'm grateful that the curriculum lets, us, lets this chapter stand alone because it deserves uh, all the attention that we can give it this week. The context behind it is actually fascinating. The church is just shy of its first birthday. But it's been kind of a rough infancy based on all the persecution and opposition that it's been facing. Remember, with almost every move, and there have been quite a few already, it's on the back of persecution. You know, even the gathering to Ohio, it was partly because of the enemy. Starting anything new can be difficult. But being on the front end of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, all eyes on, fixed on you as far as opposition is concerned. This is how Joseph Smith described the context of this revelation. He wrote, At this age of the church, many false reports, lies, and foolish stories were published in the newspapers and circulated in every direction to prevent people from investigating the work or embracing the faith. 
Now, if Joseph will let me interrupt him for a moment, I'm fascinated by what he just described there. False reports, lies, and foolish stories. Now, it's one thing for false reports and lies. That's the kind of opposition we typically picture. In fact, you remember when uh, Joseph Smith is sitting down to write Joseph Smith history, and he begins it by saying uh, that I need to disabuse the public mind. If the public mind needs disabusing, then it's been abused. And so those falsehoods and those lies are, are, are creeping into people's subconscious. But in some ways, what's lodging there even more than the, the flat-out lies and false reports is the foolish stories that Joseph mentioned. Foolishness? Uh, like I said, you've been praying for me to help me finish my dissertation, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, in a nutshell, it's about Thomas Paine's approach to attack the Bible in the Age of Reason. And the time period and this, the anti-religious rhetoric that was going on, particularly from him, but specifically the rhetoric of ridicule. I, ever since I began studying anti-religious rhetoric, I've been shocked at how much of it was foolish stories. Uh, jokes and puns and, and just sarcastic remarks and name-calling and insult. It's fascinating to me to see the, the, the politics of humor, if you want to call it that way. Because if we're talking about religion, matters of faith, where it can't be proven true or proven false, all I'm left with is rhetoric, persuasive power. And if I can say things that make you feel a certain way, I, I can, especially with, with ridicule, if I can, the, the old phrase is reductio ad absurdum, to reduce to the absurd. And if I can take something, especially if you haven't already investigated it yet, if I can describe that thing, whatever it might be, in such a way that I can get you laughing at it, mocking it, then when you actually do, when it's presented to you, you already have seeds of doubt planted in the soil of the soul. It's already been made a laughing stock. And, so, and, and honestly, what got me thinking about that as far as anti-biblical rhetoric was an earlier study that I did on anti-Book of Mormon rhetoric. Uh, throughout the first decade of the church's existence, really. Almost every newspaper account that talked about the book coming forth of the Book of Mormon, hardly anybody had actually opened the book and read it. But they'd heard stories about Joe Smith and a gold Bible and stone spectacles and an, and an angel that came and told them about it. And they made that story a laughing stock. It's kind of unfortunate that the first newspaper, the Palmyra Reflector, uh, that starts reporting about the, the Book of Mormon, the editor of that newspaper, number one, was a skeptic by, by nature. There were a lot of those at that time period. Not just uh, skeptical of, of Mormonism, but skeptical of revealed religion in general. Again, that's the aftermath of Thomas Paine. But number two, he tried to infuse his newspaper with some humor. And a lot of newspaper editors did at the time. To try to, I mean, there was so much competition for readership that if they could spice it up a little bit, then all the better. Kind of a Ben Franklin and Poor Richard's Almanac just stretching out across the 19th century. And once other newspaper editors caught the joke, oh, they let it run like wildfire. Even before the Book of Mormon actually appeared in print, there was this obscure kind of gossip paper in Rochester, which was about 25 miles away from Palmyra. And even without the Book of Mormon in print yet, it was making fun of Joe Smith and the Gold Bible already. Speaking of it as if it were already common knowledge, and in fact, comic knowledge. A few years later, there was even a collection of Mother Goose nursery rhymes that was trying to, oh, carve out space in the market by, by advertising itself as the ultimate compilation, the ultimate anthology. We've got them all, including those that have been discovered on, in the ruins of Herculaneum, which had just been discovered. 
and, and written or engraved upon the gold plates of Joseph Smith. Uh, again, it's, it was in the water, it was in the air. People in, in early America, whenever they heard about the Book of Mormon from the, reading these newspaper articles, they were kind of primed for laughter to the point that I honestly am amazed by early converts that they were able to get past that. Because I can imagine most, you know, Samuel Smith and his peers of, among missionaries going out and knocking on a cabin door somewhere and saying, hey, we have a message from, about Jesus Christ. And it's like, okay, so far so good. It's, uh, we have a book. It's called the Book of Mormon. And as soon as the words came out of their mouth, you could picture the knee-jerk reaction being laughter or at least skepticism. Like, you, you fell for that? It would have taken an amazing amount of courage of, of swimming upstream and, and being willing to be countercultural to actually entertain the possibility that this could be the work of God, to take a copy, to begin studying it, and to realize that it was no laughing matter. It was true scripture from God. Now go back to what Joseph Smith said about receiving section 45. And honestly, based on the research that I've conducted, reading hundreds of newspaper articles from all over the East Coast and into the frontier, it was, the Book of Mormon was made into a laughing stock, along with anyone that was gullible enough to fall for the joke. And like I said, that's exactly what Thomas Paine had tried to do to the Bible 35 years before. At this age of the church, many false reports, lies, and foolish stories. So satire and parody. I mean, honestly, it's like the Book of Mormon musical in our day. Let's make fun of, of organized religion, and we'll use Mormonism and the Book of Mormon as our comic whipping boy. These foolish stories were published in the newspapers, circulated in every direction, it's exactly what's happening, to prevent people from investigating the work or embracing the faith. It was an uphill battle from the moment the missionaries introduced themselves. I mean, think about Lehi's dream. And the big opposition coming from the great and spacious building was in what form? mocking, pointing the finger of scorn at those that were coming to the tree and partaking of the fruit. I'm fascinated that's still such a common approach. Make a laughing stock of revealed religion. In fact, I believe it was 2012, there was a, a gathering of atheists and, and religious skeptics in Washington, D.C. And Richard Dawkins, who is one of the leaders of what the, the new atheism movement, basically said to all the crowd assembled, we have to laugh Christianity out of existence, ridicule their beliefs, mock them, make fun of them. Because if you can make something seem absurd, then people will think that they're thinking about it, when in reality, it's more of a gut feeling. And they feel ashamed, they don't want to be laughed at. That's one of the great ironies of humor, is it, is it aims at the heart even though it pretends to be talking to the head. If I can make something seem ridiculous, then it, it feels like, or it seems like, a mental rejection of it, as if you've actually paid a price of study, that it fails on the balance of reason. That was Thomas Paine's work, The Age of Reason. There was nothing reasonable about his attack on the Bible. It was ridicule. But it, that way it, it affects the emotion. It makes you feel like an idiot, and you're more likely to let it go. Or, or not even entertain the possibility of investigating it to begin with. Beware the mocking sneers and scoffs of those in the great and spacious building. Joseph actually gave an example of something, which is fascinating to me. He said, a great earthquake in China 
which destroyed from one to two hundred thousand inhabitants, was burlesqued in some papers as, quote, Mormonism in China. Now, how you turn a natural disaster and a catastrophe on the level of one to two hundred thousand deaths, I think that shows some of the racism in early America, that, oh, it's just, it's foreigner, so who even cares? But also just this, the, this feeling against Mormonism that, oh, this destruction of, of human life, laughable as they tried to make it, is somehow connected to Mormonism, that there's Mormonism in China for you. Well, imagine how you'd feel as a Latter-day Saint. Perhaps one more reason for gathering, that you can realize you're not alone in this. You've had a spiritual experience. The Holy Ghost has confirmed to you the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the Gospel. And to have other people who have had the same experience and can testify right alongside you that it's true, that would be some comforting companionship. Well, as Joseph continues describing the context of section 45, he said, but to the joy of the saints who had to struggle against everything that prejudice and wickedness could invent, I received the following. Here comes section 45. Catch what Joseph said. It was prejudice that they were up against. Tom Paine himself said, prejudice is like the spider of the mind. And, and if you can remove prejudice and insert some new idea, like he was doing with common sense, or if he could weave his own new strands of prejudice against the Bible in his case, or a later generation of newspaper editors weave these strands, this spider web of prejudice against the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll come up with new nicknames like, like Mormonites. We'll, we'll take Joseph and just lab, label him Old Joe. The Book of Mormon will just become a gold Bible. The Urim and Thummim, oh, stone spectacles. It's a nursery rhyme on the level of Mother Goose herself. Well, that is what prejudice is inventing. And up against that, Joseph receives this revelation, section 45, which would have come as such a comfort to these beleaguered saints facing bigotry and, and prejudice all around them. To help us see the end from the beginning, it's largely about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We saw section 29 as a big second coming section. Section 43 last week was about the second coming. Now section 45 is also putting in context the signs of the times and, and the last days. And the persecution the saints are facing in, in, in the adversaries' attempts to deceive them away from the truth, that's all in context of the second coming as well. And as we in our day are much closer to the second coming than they were, still facing opposition, persecution, and plenty of scorn, if you've ever been laughed at for your testimony of Jesus Christ, again, that specific form of opposition, it, it, it does something to your heart, doesn't it? Well, I hope section 45 does something to our hearts today as well. To comfort, to reassure, to remind us of promises that God has made to his faithful. That's what this section is for. So, verse 1, hearken. That common call to attention that so many revelations begin with. Hearken, O ye people of my church, to whom the kingdom has been given. Who cares the, about the reputation people are trying to take away from you? Think about what I have given you instead. The kingdom. The kingdom is yours until I come, he said earlier. To whom the kingdom has been given. Hearken ye and give ear to him who laid the foundation of the earth, who made the heavens and all the hosts thereof, 
and by whom all things were made which live and move and have a being. Reminds me of the way the Lord began section 38 as he's trying to put the law of consecration in context. Do you, do you see the big picture, saints? The earth is just my footstool. Why are you fighting over your 40 acres? Or in this case, I laid the foundation of the earth. I've made the heavens. I know every, all of the hosts thereof. So if someone else happens to be making fun of you, back up, look at things from the eternal perspective, and it is nothing. Remember, this is the same Lord who tells his disciples during his lifetime, that blessed are you if you are persecuted for my name's sake. Let them say what they will. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul himself would say, to the Romans, right? The saints in Rome, ca the capital of the empire. Talk about pressure where everyone's reputation and what, are the, what do the locals think of you in such a, a metropolitan center as Rome itself. What's Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what mocking and scorn is working on, trying to leverage your sense of shame. Well, the Lord himself, who's made all things, he will back you up, no matter what the world says in derision. Verse 2, again I say, hearken unto my voice, lest death shall overtake you. In an hour when you think not, the summer shall be past, and the harvest ended, and your souls not saved. So interesting the way the Lord describes death as overtaking you. You're going to get this sense of, of running away from it as fast as you can and looking over your shoulder and it's still there, it's still there, and zigzag and, and just trying to escape death. Well, sooner or later it will catch up. Death will overtake us all. The question is, how have we lived while it was in hot pursuit? Have we lived the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or as we're looking at death behind our shoulder, are we also looking at our peers and feeling the pressure that they're trying to throw upon us? Are we caring too much about what other people think? There's no need to run from that. Face the scorn and opposition and, and be bold in declaring your testimony of the gospel. Because soon enough, summertime will end. Harvest will happen. Will our soul be saved? I mean, if you think about the seasons, it's interesting the, the metaphor that each season can be. If you think about spring as this time of, of new beginnings and a new life, and then summer as this period of growth, preparing then for a harvest at fall, and then the death of things at winter. I mean, you can go full circle and think of next spring being resurrection, right? But again, to think of the summer is past, harvest is ended. What do you have in your, in your, in your bushels? Hopefully it's the harvest and not the candle that you're supposed to be letting shine before the world. When harvest comes and judgment is passed, will our souls be saved? Now, in the context of that thought of judgment, the Lord then presents this incredible courtroom scene in verse 3, 4, and 5. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. Now, an advocate is a defense attorney. So in this courtroom scene, and, and, and again, based on what the saints are facing there, they're facing the court of public opinion. What do our neighbors think of us? And will there be anyone who can defend us before them? Alexis de Tocqueville, who came in the 1830s to check out America, kept talking about the tyranny of popular opinion. He thought it's amazing to see uh, just Americans care so much about what everyone else thinks about them. Their reputation is everything. 
fact, another European visitor came and just said, Americans' sense of, of self is so fragile. You say anything against the United States and they just fall to pieces. She was amazed, shocked, uh, dismayed at how much Americans cared about what their neighbors thought of them. This is what the saints are up against. Well, do they have a defense attorney to give them backup? Yes, they do. And not just in terms of the court of public opinion, but also the court on high. He is advocating their cause before the Father. Now, that's a role for a lawyer that I'm not envious of. Because when it comes to us and our cause before God, what's a defense attorney going to say? We're guilty and we know it. So does our uh, judge, so does the jury, so does all, so do all the other witnesses. Of course, they're guilty too. Uh, and so does our defense attorney. My brother's a lawyer, and I always, I always make fun of him you know, with the, the normal old you know, slew of, of lawyer jokes. But often I think defense attorneys get a particularly bad rap because if the, if there, sometimes there's a sense that everybody knows the client is guilty. Well, what's a defense attorney going to say? Are we going to plead insanity? Uh, are we going to do a plea deal? How can I get my client off the hook? And is there some dishonesty there or whatever it might be? Now, of course, there's, there's in, uh, defense attorneys full of integrity and honesty as well. My brother uh, is a good lawyer. Okay? But to see on this case, when it comes to Judgment Day, what could Jesus possibly say to save us? Where, I mean, guilt is literally written across our face. That's what Isaiah said. The, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. We know we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here in verse 3, when he says, listen to him who is the advocate, he's actually going to tell us in advance what the Lord's closing argument is going to be in our defense. And it's fascinating. I mean, the way he sets it up in 3, listen to your advocate, verse 4, saying... So now we know how he's going to plead our cause before God. And this is what he'll say. So can you, can you set the stage? You're uh, not on the witness stand. You're, you're there. I don't even know what they call it. Where the, the, the person who's been indicted is sitting there. And you can imagine all eyes on the courtroom trained on that person. Because all the evidence and all the witnesses' testimony is pointing out their guilt. And now you're just waiting to see what the sentence will be. So picture this, all eyes on the guilty party that has guilt written all over their face. What on earth can a defense attorney possibly say to sway the tide? Well, this is what he will say. Verse four, saying, Father, or in our courtroom scene, your honor. Behold, so this is an I verb. What are you looking at? All eyes to this point are on the guilty party. But this defense attorney is asking us to do something else with our eyes. Father, your honor, behold, look at the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold, so look, the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Now that is the strangest defense argument you could possibly imagine. But that's the one that Jesus will use. As all eyes are trained on the guilty, he will ask judge and jury alike to say, could I pause the proceedings for a moment and ask you to pry your eyes off the guilty party and look at me for a moment. Behold the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. 
Behold my blood which was shed for them. Those robes of reminding red, as Elder Maxwell described the second coming. He'll be clothed in that once again. All eyes on me. Red is that color that draws the attention. You see what Jesus is doing? I mean, again, in a courtroom scene, can you imagine a, de a defense attorney saying, judge, jury, I, I know that the, or my client is guilty. There's nothing I can say against that. That's obvious. They confessed themselves. But if you could pry your eyes off the guilty and look at me for a moment, and then the, the, that lawyer starts giving their own credentials, well, you can picture um, objection, they would say, from the, from the prosecution, and sustained, the judge would say, because the character of the defense, uh, the defense attorney has nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of the party charged. So what is Jesus possibly doing here? Well, it's what he's already done. I've already accepted the fact that my client is guilty. In fact, I've not only accepted their guilt, I've accepted their punishment I've taken it upon myself. I condescended. I joined them in Gethsemane. I paid the price for their guilt, which admittedly is obvious. But now as you look at me, you see what starts to happen as all eyes shift from the person that's being indicted to the defense attorney, our advocate with the Father? If you look at this person, you will see guilt. But if you look at me, you will see an innocence so intense that it can change their scarlet sin to white as snow. So look at me. Behold my sufferings and my death. Look at my blood. And be merciful to them. That's what he says in verse 5 as he closes his argument. Wherefore, Father. So because of that, your honor. Consequently, judge. Spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. It's amazing that even in that moment, the Lord doesn't refer to us as my client. He calls us my brother, my sister. One with me as I am one with you, Father. And because they believe on my name, they have beheld the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. They have looked upon the blood which I shed for them, and they believe in my name. They have faith in my atoning blood. They have faith in my grace. So as a result, Father, be merciful to them. Spare them so that they can come unto me and have everlasting life. In that statement, our advocate our lawyer for the defense, now becomes our court-appointed guardian. Let them come unto me, Father. I'll take it from here. I did take their place in pain for their sins. Suffering, remember section 19, if you don't repent, then you must suffer even as I did. But if you do repent, then you've accepted the suffering that I have endured for your behalf. But as a result of that, can, can we transfer responsibility here? I've already transferred guilt, but can I transfer responsibility that this person no longer owes anything to the court of justice? It's been fully paid by me. But now that responsibility shifts to me. Again, from defense attorney to court-appointed guardian. I'll be their parole officer if that's what they need. I will help them change to reform themselves. 
it's amazing that as, as that parole officer and court-appointed guardian, the, the level of recidivism, uh, that's repeat offense, goes down incredibly as we turn our lives over to the Lord and He changes us. The mighty change of heart, born again. That phrase from Isaiah that guilt is written upon their countenance, well, switch that to what Alma says. Have we received Christ's image in our countenance? That's exactly what the Lord is after here. Honestly, section 45 verses 3, 4, and 5 are some of the most powerful verses you could ever read about the atonement of Jesus Christ and the defense that Jesus makes on our behalf. It's the most merciful courtroom scene you could ever imagine. And in verse 6 he continues, Hearken, O ye people of my church. So he's calling our attention a second time. All of this was preliminary. He's trying to set the stage. Hearken, O ye people of my church, and ye elders, listen together, and hear my voice while it is called today, and harden not your hearts. You sense the urgency he keeps bringing up? The summer will be passed. The harvest will be ended. So we've got to work today. Don't harden your heart. Be soft and open to me. Verse 7, Verily I say unto you that I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the light and the life of the world, a light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. That's how he introduced himself to the gathered Nephites, at his coming among them. Again, this is going to be second coming prep that we are seeing in this section. And in a day of darkness and destruction, here comes the light and life of the world. Jesus couldn't have introduced himself with any more meaningful titles than those when he came among the Nephites. Same thing among us. And especially as he talks about shining in darkness and the darkness just not getting it. Darkness never understands light. So saints... You're going to have to learn to be okay with skepticism and scorn, with derision and insult, with mocking and pointing fingers. That's all they do over the great and spacious building. Believe me, I get it. You want to talk about callousness in your comedy? Then come back to me with me to the crucifixion and see people mocking me in my agony, offering vinegar instead of water. The joke's on you casting lots for my raiment. There's a gambling game for my last piece of clothing, scoffing, wondering why I could save others and not save myself. To be made an object of scorn, of ridicule, I get it. The darkness never understands the light, and I am the light of the world. Verse 8, I came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. So if you've been rejected by family or friends, I know exactly how you feel. But, he continues, unto as many as received me, and now I'm talking not about you, but to you, all of you who have received me, in spite of all the opposition, persecution, ridicule, scorn that you faced, you who have received me against the odds, you who have stepped out of the darkness because you understand light, it's to those that I gave power to do many miracles, to become the sons of God. Even unto them that believed on my name gave I power to obtain eternal life. Who cares if you face opposition in your mortal life? You will obtain eternal life if you can just endure it. It's one thing to be made an object of scorn now. 
but to become a son or daughter of God because you are not ashamed of him, that you're willing to take up the cross and bear the shame of the world. That's the phrase that often goes along with it, the shame. The saints are learning to do just that. And there is power that comes through Christ to be able to do it. Verse 9, Even so I have sent my everlasting covenant into the world to be a light to the world, to be a standard for my people, for the Gentiles to seek to it, and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. What's this everlasting covenant the Lord has sent into the world? It's his church. It's his gospel. It's his kingdom. It's the restoration of the priesthood. and All that the Lord is doing, it's because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant he made with Enoch. The covenant he made with Adam. Honestly, it's the covenant he made through Christ with all of us in premortality itself. I will not send you away without a promise that you can return. Remember, that's why he's restoring all of these things, in order to restore his people. And that's what the church is supposed to be. Notice the three things he says. It will be a light to the world. It will be a standard for my people. And it will be a messenger to prepare the way before me. Light, standard, messenger. Are we all of those things? As, as embodiments of the Lord's everlasting covenant? as members of his church? Do we help people see? Because that's what light is for. With that newfound sight, do we show them the ultimate goal? Because that's what a standard is. I used to high jump and to see that standard. This is the bar I'm trying to clear. My sons are way better basketball players than I've ever, ever was. And they see the standard and there's this focus to get the ball into the hoop. That's the goal. Do we help people see that? And now that they see it, light, now that they set their sights upon it, standard, are we the messenger of hope, of guidance, of instruction, of grace, so that people know how to reach that goal? If I am light, I'm helping people overcome darkness. If I'm standard, I'm helping people overcome the relativism of the world, where there is no, nothing to aim for or shoot at. And if I'm messenger, then I am helping the world overcome its ignorance by giving them the good news of Jesus Christ. So you who are light, shine. Be an example. You who are standards, inspire. Set the bar. And you who are messengers, teach. Share the truth that you know. Those in darkness may reject that light. The wicked will choose to come short of that standard. And the hard of heart will reject the message that you are offering them, but be light and standard and messenger nonetheless. Jesus was, the, was all of those three things to perfection, the light of the world, the standard of perfection, and the messenger of God's plan of salvation. May we represent him. Verse 10, Wherefore come ye unto it, come unto this everlasting covenant, and with him that cometh, I will reason as with men in days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. I love that here the Lord is speaking of reasoning with us. It reminds me of that great verse in Isaiah of, Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. But to reason, again, this is early, United, early America, the age of reason, it was called, and common sense being the thing that should be able to decide all difficulties. And if you've just been made a laughing stock, 
that you failed all the tests of reason. So those Mormons are just a bunch of gullible dupes. I can't believe they fell for Joe Smith's a joke. And the Lord is saying, oh, you want to talk about reason? We can go there. Often people will come to me and say, oh, how do I talk with my sibling? Or I've got a, a friend or an old mission companion that's left the church. They're, they're so smart. They're such an intellectual. And I just want to go, well, that's not a problem at all. Remember the, section 8, the Lord speaks to the mind as well as the heart. The Lord is willing and able to reason with you. It's just not reason alone, which is unfortunately often what they're demanding. I often say that it's like they put this lead shield about neck level and say, I, I want to completely separate head from heart and only talk to the head. And often at the same time, they, they subtly accuse believers of only working upon the heart. I'll often say to them, I'm not asking you to be a heart only, because I'm not a heart only either. But please don't force me to be a head only, because I'm a human, and there are humanities that require more than the mind alone. Reality divided by reason still leaves a remainder, Goethe said. Reason is not the sum total of our existence, in other words. But reason is there. And the Lord himself is willing to reason with us. His strong reasoning, in fact. Why else would Latter-day Saints be one of the few holdouts, religiously speaking, of the, of the sad trend that typically the higher education we have, the lower our religiosity? That's by and large true, but not for Latter-day Saints. Uh, amazingly, among Latter-day Saints, the more educated a person is, the higher their level of, of faithfulness and commitment to the church. Think of all the PhDs in the Quorum of the Twelve. I mean, it's, again, that's not always the case. And some people think themselves right out of their testimony. But if you want to reason, oh, the Lord has strong reasoning. And faith does have a reasonable leg to stand on. It just doesn't stand on that leg alone mind and heart, okay, to give a reason for the hope that is in you, to learn to gain knowledge by study and also by faith. Athens and Jerusalem are supposed to be sister cities, and in the restored gospel they are. In verse 11, no wonder he can say, wherefore hearken ye together and let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren. Wisdom. So not just intelligence, it includes intelligence, but adds to it an ability to know what to do with that intelligence. And that often is what requires the heart to help balance out the mind. It's one of the beautiful things about the Lord's strong reasoning. It's not just informational, it's wise. These verses about wisdom and reasoning remind me of what Paul taught the Corinthians. And Corinth was very close to Athens, which, again, is the personification of the wisdom of the world. And what's Paul say to them? My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why would he do that? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, lest we think that Paul is just kind of excusing himself from having to use his brain, which he never does. The guy was a genius. I mean, read his stuff and try to keep up with it. So he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. You want wisdom? Oh, well, we've got plenty of wisdom. It's just a different kind than what the world restricts itself to. 
He says, it's not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. That kind of wisdom has a short shelf life. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, I really think Paul's words to the Corinthians tie in so powerfully with the Lord's words to the saints here in section 45. You want wisdom? Well, I've got wisdom to give you. But it's the hidden wisdom. It's the wisdom that the princes of the world know nothing about because darkness cannot comprehend light. The kind of wisdom I'm trying to give to you, saints, is the wisdom that I gave to the people of Enoch. I am the God of Enoch and his brethren. With that, the Lord is trying to pivot us to think more about creating Zion. That's what the law was for in section 42. It's what the consecration is he's hinting at in section 38. It's why he's gathering them to the Ohio so that they can escape the enemy, receive the law, be endowed with power from on high. I mean, you want to talk about hidden wisdom, then go to the temple. But all of this in terms of creating a Zion upon the earth, coming from the God of Enoch himself. The Zion from below built so that Zion from above can be brought, built and brought, all coming together. Verse 12, describing those people of Enoch, and by association, all of us who are trying to be, become Zion builders ourselves. Verse 12, who were separated from the earth and were received unto myself, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men, and they found it not, because of wickedness and abominations. You're not the first group of saints to deal with what you're dealing with. So powerful the way the Lord describes that. They were searching for a day. They sought for a, a day. These holy men did. They didn't find it because of the wickedness and abominations of their time period. But in not finding it themselves, they looked forward. They looked ahead. Put all their eggs in the restorations basket. There's a beautiful verse in Matthew 13. Amidst all of these parables of the kingdom that Jesus teaches where he says to his apostles, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. It's like he's trying to tell his apostles of that day, do you have any idea how blessed you are to be living right now in the dispensation of the meridian of times? There's this high point, this center, I'm here among you. But the same could be said about the last days, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Do you have any idea how many prophets and righteous men and women from dispensations past have longed to see the things that we see all around us? In verse 13, they're described as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's such a powerful phrase. To be a stranger or a pilgrim here on earth See, if you're a stranger or a pilgrim, you're traveling far from home. You're in a place that, that doesn't feel like home to you. I looked up alternate translations of that verse because it's, it's a phrase that Peter uses. And actually, he's building on the Psalms. So this is Old Testament to New Testament to New Dispensation. What does it mean to be a stranger and a pilgrim? And other translations of the Greek terms that Peter uses are words like foreigners, exiles, sojourners, aliens, wayfarers, refugees, temporary residents. Now, does it describe how we should feel about our time on earth? I mean, it's one thing to be a stranger or a pilgrim, 
outside of your country, but you're still on planet Earth. Here, there's nowhere you can go on the Earth to truly feel at home. I'm, I'm a stranger, a pilgrim, an exile, a refugee, anywhere I go on the planet, because I wasn't made for mere mortality. I mean, again, it's Eliza R. Snow, that we are strangers here. If you've ever been a part of a baby blessing and just sensed almost this, oh, I call it celestial homesickness, that this newborn, this very old spirit in a brand new body is beginning their sojourn on earth, but this is not the place they were destined to occupy eternally. Well, in a way it is. It's going to become the celestial kingdom, okay? But in terms of the earth, the mortal time period, why do we get so caught up about what worldly people think of us, what they say, the cares of the world? Well, why do we care about the world at all? Other than our hope to be light and standard and messenger in this world, to change it. If you sometimes feel a little uneasy spiritually, uncomfortable, out of place, here on planet Earth, there's a reason for that. Heaven is our home. And we'll never fully feel at home on Earth until we make it a heaven ourselves. So you saints worried about the tyranny of popular opinion. <laughs> Why try so hard to fit into a place that you're not intended to stay? We're pilgrims and strangers. That's okay. Verse 14, they obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh. And remember what the Lord has said repeatedly, the kingdom is yours until I come. You can see it in the flesh. You can have a hint of what the entire earth itself will be like when it receives its paradisiacal glory. You can begin the millennium in your own home. You can experience these things in the flesh. A foretaste of what the world will feel at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's a promise that they obtained and that we can obtain too. The word promise comes up several times in this revelation in powerful ways. So keep an eye out for God's promises. Verse 15, he then continues, Wherefore, so as a result of all of this promise, these strangers and, and sojourners, hearken and I will reason with you. And I will speak unto you and prophesy as unto men in days of old. So part of this reasoning that he's trying to do is to connect us back to his disciples from, from earlier days. We see he refers to himself as the God of Enoch. That's a huge part. We'll also see him referring to things he taught his apostles in his dispensation. So you connect all these dispensation heads and bring them together. And Joseph, you're the leader of this final dispensation. All of you saints, gather together, hearken, listen. I'm reasoning with you. I'm going to prophesy to you, just like I did in ancient times. Verse 16, I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples as I stood before them in the flesh and spake unto them saying, as ye have asked of me concerning the signs of my coming in the day when I shall come in my glory in the clouds of heaven to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. So there's that word promises again. I made promises to the ancients, the people of Enoch. I made promises to the people of my day my disciples who stood before me in the flesh, as they began to realize, wait, it, it's not all going to happen right now. Remember, that was a, a question they often had for him. Are you planning on re restoring the kingdom now? I mean, you are the Messiah. Is it go time? Are you going to restore the kingdom? 
to overthrow Rome. I mean, so many people were, were thinking of that. In fact, often they missed the point of Jesus' first coming because they were so laser-focused on his second coming. It was just a little, more, a little premature on their part. And so they're starting, as, a, as the end of Christ's mortal ministry is, is approaching, this is, uh, there's a lot of connection here in section 45 to the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 23 has just ended, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens? Remember that from section 43? Well, now we're section 45, and what happens after Matthew 23? Matthew 24, which is this Olivet Discourse where Jesus teaches his apostles of the signs of the times. The destruction that they will face in their day, which is a preview of coming attractions of the destruction of the world before the second coming. So Matthew 23, gathering the, the chickens under the hen's wings. 24, here's signs of the times. Doctrine and Covenants, fast forward to 1,800 years. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants 43, the hen gathering her chickens. 45, signs of the times. It's amazing the parallels that the Lord is giving them and giving us. And it's a way for him to fulfill his promises to everyone. Remember, I have set mine everlasting covenant into the world. A covenant, promises, it's all coming together. Verse 17, for as you have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage. That's a powerful description of death. Our spirits will miss our bodies. It must be physical and spiritual joined eternally. That's what resurrection's for. Without it, we're in bondage. We'll see that again in section 138. I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come and also the restoration of the scattered Israel. I love verse 17. The three R's are coming together in that. We're talking resurrection and redemption and restoration. Overcoming the bondage that you feel when body and spirit are separated. Overcoming the spiritual bondage of sin. That's the, red, the redemption that will come. And also overcoming the scattering of Israel through the gathering, which occurs because of the restoration. No wonder President Nelson talks about the gathering of Israel so often. That's what the restoration is for. So resurrection, redemption, and restoration. It's all part of God's promise. When I send you to earth to receive a body, and that body eventually gives out and dies, I promise you that that won't be the end of it. When I send you to earth in this, this mortal probation and, and the struggles and trials and sins that you will commit, I covenant, I promise you, I will make for a redemption so that you can be saved from that. And the scattering that will take place, well, there will be a restoration and gathering as well. All of this is part of my promise, my everlasting covenant. Verse 18, now ye behold this temple, which is in Jerusalem. He's still talking about his conversation with the apostles from the Mount of Olives. They're just sitting across the Kidron Valley from it, looking at the temple that Jesus had cleansed, where Jesus had taught. The temple was such a central place, a fixture of Jesus Christ's ministry in Jerusalem. Well, are you seeing it? Are you beholding it? A temple which ye call the house of God, and your enemies say that this house shall never fall. So those who are opposing you, the Jewish leadership at the time, they're saying that that house will never fall. Well, they're not exactly treating it like God's house. That's why I had to cleanse it twice during my ministry. But verse 19, Verily I say unto you, that desolation shall come upon this generation 
as a thief in the night, and this people shall be destroyed and scattered among all nations. And this temple, which ye now see, shall be thrown down, that there shall not be left one stone upon another. And it shall come to pass that this generation of Jews shall not pass away until every desolation which I have told you concerning them shall come to pass. So all that he said in verse 18, 19, 20, 21 is for that immediate audience of, of apostles sitting there next to Jesus on the Mount of Olives during the Savior's last week of mortal life. You understand what you will face this generation of Jews. Desolation. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, it's called the desolation of abominations. A desolation so intense it is abominable. Or, flip it, an abomination so intense that it leaves the world desolate. Josephus, when he talks about the wars of the Jews, describes it as so intense that blood would run through the streets of Jerusalem like, like rain, rainwater. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem. There is one example of the desolation of abominations. The temple itself, torn apart, stone by stone. Well, in verse 22, then it shifts. Again, section 45 is the Doctrine and Covenants equivalent of Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew 24 is like signs of the times central. But what's interesting about Matthew 24 is it's, the Lord is talking about two different time periods, but it's sometimes hard to tell what time is he talking about. There's the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans shortly after the ministry of Jesus. But there's also the destruction of the wicked and the world right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 24, sometimes again, it's hard to un unravel the two. That's actually one of the blessings of the Joseph Smith translation, which Joseph is at work on as we speak. And there were so many necessary changes and, and, and fixes of Matthew 24 that it got uh, republished in its correct form in Joseph Smith Matthew. That's what Joseph Smith Matthew is in the Pearl of Great Price. It's just the, jo the JST, the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24. Signs of the Times Central, the Olivet Discourse. And Doctrine and Covenants 45 is the Lord's commentary upon it. it. It's really incredible. And just like I said with Matthew 24, hard to tell between the two different time periods, Joseph Smith Matthew, the JST of it, separates it out far better. It shows that there's parallels between the two. They're, they're meant to be kind of an, the second is an echo of the first. But he does separate it out saying this is what happens the first time. This is what happens the second time. Well, the same thing is happening here. These last four or five verses, that's the time period that Jesus lived in. And now, verse 22, let's go preview of coming attractions. Ye say that ye know that the end of the world cometh. So now we're not just talking about end of Jerusalem. It's end of the world. Ye say also that ye know that the heavens and the earth shall pass away. And in this ye say truly, for so it is. But these things which I have told you shall not pass away until all shall be fulfilled. So basically what the Lord is saying here is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans is a preview of coming attractions, or in this case, a preview of coming destructions, namely the destruction of the wicked at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's actually really interesting what Nephi does with the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi, that massive chunk that, that stops us in our tracks as we study the Book of Mormon. There's two different places in those Isaiah chapters where Nephi, well, where Isaiah says that the destruction that you're seeing in our day is a preview of the destruction of the world before the second coming. In fact, just check out the chapter headings, okay? In 2 Nephi 20, which is Isaiah 10, it says that the destruction of Assyria is a type 
of the destruction of the wicked at the second coming. And then three chapters later, this is Isaiah 13, or 2 Nephi 23, the chapter heading says, the destruction of Babylon is a type of the destruction at the second coming. It's like Isaiah is giving them, if you, in case you missed the first one, I'll do a second one, okay? Whether it's Assyria being destroyed or Babylon being destroyed, the two big enemies of Israel during Isaiah's time period, both of their, that's, that's the world. The world superpower was Assyria. Later, it was Babylon. And their destruction is, again, a type and shadow, a, a prefiguring or foreshadowing of the world itself. When it is destroyed, its wickedness is destroyed, before the coming of Jesus Christ. Same thing's happening now. So it's like, it's almost like, okay, Isaiah used Assyria, he, he used Babylon, and now Jesus is using Rome, and Rome's destruction of Jerusalem. All three of them are meant to point forward to this last day. I hope this is making sense. It's amazing how it all kind of ties together here. In verse 24 then, and 25, we see scattering and gathering. This I have told you concerning Jerusalem, and when that day shall come, shall a remnant be scattered among all nations, that's the Jewish diaspora, and they shall be gathered again, but they shall remain until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It's really amazing. And all, again, all three of these time periods, uh, when Assyria came, they scattered the northern tribes. That's the lost ten tribes. When Babylon came, they carried the Jews captive back into Jerusalem, uh, back to Babylon. So there's another scattering of the north, scattering of the south, and now uh, when the Romans come, the Jews, uh, the house of Israel in Jesus' day, being scattered among all nations too. But we got a lot of gathering to do. And that's what the covenant of the everlasting covenant, the bringing forth of the light and the standard and the messenger, that's what we're for, to gather scattered Israel from any of those three previous versions of the, of the scattering. Then in verse 26, he says this, And in that day, so now he's really getting into the signs of the times. What will that day entail? Well, here's your list. We started to see it in section 29. Now we'll see more of it here in 45. In that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars. And the whole earth shall be in commotion. Men's hearts shall fail them. And they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. Fascinating list there. Wars and rumors of wars. I don't know if there's a better description of terrorism than rumors of wars. I don't know about you, but I remember the world changing on September 11th, 2001. And it, was, it just felt like a very different type of war. Because with war, it seems like, well, there's the enemy, and they're marshaled against us, and we're fighting. But with terrorism, it's like... Who, who are they and where are they coming from and what are they going to do next? And is there, is there someone that we can actually fight back against? It sounds a lot like a rumor because what's a rumor? Where is it coming from and how is it spreading and is there a way to stop it? I mean, wars, that's one thing. Rumors of wars, man, we've been fighting rumors of wars for the past 20 years now. And as a result, no wonder the earth is in such commotion. As a result, no wonder men's hearts are failing them. The anxiety, the depression, the, the failure of heart that's taking place because of a world in commotion all around us. And saddest of all, instead of seeing this as hastening the coming of Christ, people are still kind of pushing it back by, pro, by procrastinating the day of their repentance, saying, oh, well, Christ is delaying his coming anyway. Wait, really? You want to prolong the, the chaotic world? 
You want to prolong and persist in, in men's hearts failing them? You want more time for wars and rumors of wars to develop? I don't. I don't want the Lord to delay his coming. I want to, to quicken the pace, speed up the gathering so that he, the world is prepared for his return. Verse 27, the, this perhaps the scariest sign of the time of them all. The love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. What a tragic result of the failure of heart. It's the loss of love that we don't care. I mean, you want to talk about racism and, and bigotry. You want to talk about abortion. You want to talk about murder and violence and all of the things that we see on the news practically every time you turn it on. It is the love of men waxing cold. And without that love, without charity, the pure love of Christ, no wonder iniquity abounds. There's no love to, to restrain it, to hold it back. Verse 28, when the times of the Gentiles is come in, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. Now he mentioned Gentiles back in verse 25. They shall remain until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then in 28, when the times of the Gentiles is come in, when it's fulfilled, then the light spreads forth. Then that's the fullness of my gospel. Now we talked about this a little bit last year, uh, a little bit, I mean, symbolically, so it was a little bit cryptic. But if you see the Book of Mormon as the scale model of the, of the last days, with the church organized, especially the small plates. Uh, in Mosiah, the church is organized, and Alma, missionaries go forth. It ends with wars and rumors of wars, and then Helaman comes in, and, and you see the Nephites on the wane, and, and the, ne the Lamanites blossoming as the rose. You get Samuel the Lamanite running the show from the top of the wall. And all of that in preparation now for third Nephi, where it's the destruction of the wicked, the coming of Christ, the mini-millennium, the return to final battles and then the end of the book. The Book of Mormon is a scale model of the last days. It's kind of mind-blowing once you see it. But to see the, day, the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, again, the Nephites are on the decline, the Lamanites are on the rise. To see, oh, the, the, the loss of faith in the developed world, to see, I mean, if you served a mission in Europe, you know what I'm talking about. He's like, ouch, the days of the Gentiles has, has been fulfilled. I mean, the homelands of the Reformation, the birthplace of biblical Protestantism. Uh, it, it's amazing what Europe has done and, and the Gentiles spreading the gospel around the world. But among those Gentiles, if you think Europe and Scandinavia and the United States, it, it's on the decline. Religion is the center of gravity of faith is shifting to the global south. And it's fascinating to, to consider are the days of the Gentiles shifting? Are the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Is it time? Are we returning now to the house of Israel? Are we shifting from Nephites to Lamanites? Are we seeing a Samuel the Lamanite beginning to rise? I was fascinated by Elder Gong's talk in this last general conference where he pointed out something I've known for years that there are more members of the church outside the United States than inside. But as he pointed out, and this was amazing to me, Elder Gong said, by 2025, four years from now, we anticipate as many church members may live in Latin America as in the United States and Canada. And then he said, the gathering of Father Lehi's faithful descendants is fulfilling prophecy. 
Does it sound like the Lamanites are blossoming as the rose? Are we living in the, the time of Helaman? And are we soon to turn to third Nephi with the destruction of the wicked and the coming of Jesus Christ, the mini millennium and everything else? It, 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 these are the signs of the times. We're reading it here in section 45. We've read it in the Book of Mormon. We're living it in our day. Exciting time to be alive. How does that place in perspective then the, the coming forth of the fullness of the gospel, the restoration during that time period as it says at the end of 28. Then in verse 29, but, here's the bad news, the good news is the fullness of the gospel is shining forth, but 29, the bad news is they receive it not. And you saints are dealing with that. You're seeing it all around you. For they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. I love the way he puts it there in 29. They don't receive because they don't perceive. And so much, if it's our perception of things. Again, Joseph has to disabuse the public mind so that they can give truth a, a leg to stand on. I wish I would have understood this better as a missionary. Uh, and even now, where if somebody has an impression about the church, I'd love to know what it is. Because sometimes we have to unlearn a few things before we are able to learn some new things. This goes for non-member and struggling member alike. Sometimes it's a matter of asking a non-member, what, what, what have you heard about the church? I'm just curious. I'd love to hear it all. The good, the bad, the ugly. What, what's your impression? Again, Joseph used the word prejudice. Well, to prejudice, to prejudice, to prejudge. That's all prejudice is. You have prejudged. I haven't seen the evidence. I haven't listened to any witnesses. But the court case is kind of done in my mind because I have prejudged it. I've been prejudiced against it. So I'm curious. What's your prejudgment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Because that's going to determine your perception of it. And if you think we're a bunch of crackpots, if you think we've got some screws loose, if, if all you've ever heard is us being reduced to the absurd, then no wonder you're not going to receive the gospel. And the same is true of people who, who have even grown up in the church but are, are leaving it. I just, I'm curious. Be, what's keeping you from receiving a testimony or receiving an explanation? Typically, it's a perception. You cannot receive because you are perceiving in a certain way. So what's your impression? What have you heard? What, have you, what are you reading? What are you listening to in your podcasts? What, what approach to the gospel? What's your perception of it? Because your perception will allow or disallow your reception of truth. Now in verse 30, in that generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So what we talked about from verse 28 and from verse 25, the times of the Gentiles, we're seeing that shift. I really wonder, will I live to see the day when, I'm, uh, ha when I have headphones on at General Conference because it's taking place in Spanish or Portuguese? Will English speakers need to, be, to turn on the closed captions so that we can follow along? It's so exciting. I mean, this last General Conference with its international Sunday morning session was incredible. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But verse 31, There shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. Now, it's probably impossible not to think of COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic with those, those phrases an overflowing scourge, a desolating sickness covering the land. Now, lest we get overzealous and think, oh, it's happening right now. People read that verse 20 years ago and thought of AIDS and HIV. Fast forward a little and they thought of the SARS virus. Fast forward a little bit more and they thought of Ebola 
or the avian flu. What I'm trying to say, I mean, we saw it earlier, that war and rumors of wars is going to spread to all nations. We'll see more of that in Section 87, which is an amazing prophecy about the Civil War, but expanding to war to cover the globe. Well, same kinds of things here. It doesn't have to be just a single one. There are, so often with prophecy, it is multiple fulfillments. And Assyria pointing ahead, and Babylon pointing ahead, and Rome pointing ahead, and AIDS pointing ahead, and Ebola pointing ahead, and COVID-19 pointing ahead. All of these are wake-up calls in hopes that we will prepare for whatever is coming. And what does that preparation look like? Look at verse 32. But my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. But among the wicked men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. Wow, in the same verse, talk about painting the two possibilities. Do you want to be part of the group that lifts up their voices and curses God and dies? The wicked? Or, among the righteous, the disciples of Christ, will you stand in holy places and not be moved? Remember in these revelations, he's talked several times about coming to his temple. Remember, that's what the apostles are looking at across the valley from the Mount of Olives at the temple. Are we standing in holy places? Are we not moved, pushed away from them? Again, that's one of the reasons I call this channel Unshaken. I don't want to be moved I don't want to be shaken away from standing firm in a holy place. Speaking of shaking, verse 33, there shall be earthquakes also in diverse places. And I'm more fascinated by the spiritual earthquakes than the physical ones, even being a Southern Californian who's lived through a few of the literal kind. To see the shaking of faith all around me in diverse places among people I never would have expected to struggle, and yet they do. Earthquakes in diverse places, many desolations, Yet, men will harden their hearts against me. They will take up the sword one against another. They will kill one another. That yet is an interesting one because it's like all these things that I'm doing to try to wake up the world. Remember the, the alarm clock we studied last time in section 43 and all the different voices the Lord uses to try to get us to, to wake up and change? The voice of the ministering of angels, the still small voice of the Spirit, the voice of God himself, or... A little louder, the voice of thunderings and lightnings and tempests and storm. Man, the, 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 the voice of earthquakes in diverse places, the voice of desolations. Yet, you still harden your hearts? You take up sword and fight one another, kill one another, when all I'm trying to do is wake you up to, to arouse your heart to love? So hearts aren't failing and love of men aren't, isn't waxing cold. But that's exactly what's happening. To see the violence around the world today, it's a scary, it's a wake-up call. But are we waking up in the right way? Verse 34, Now, when I the Lord had spoken these words unto my disciples, they were troubled. Now, 34 is really interesting because the Lord is, it's like all this time leading up to this, it's this flashback. Okay, if we're, if we're turning this into a movie, this was all a flashback back to the Mount of Olives, Jesus talking to his original 12 apostles. And describing what the last days would look like as an echo, uh, a, a reminder of what look, the last days of the Jews would look like in, Rome, in Jerusalem. And if we're filming this, this flashback, you picture the camera focused on Jesus Christ as he's talking about these things and desolation of abominations and scattering and, and, and death and earthquakes and all these kinds of things. And then the camera starts to pan the 12 apostles and the, the, the looks on their faces as the blood kind of drains, and they're thinking, whoa, this, this is what we're up against? 
that's the end of the world and the end of Jerusalem in our day is a preview of those coming destructions, I'm feeling a little troubled. And that word probably puts it lightly. I wonder if the Lord is recognizing the same looks upon the, sa- the faces of the saints that he's talking to right there. It's almost like Joseph and Sidney and Edward and, and Parley and all the, you know, Emma and, all the, and Lydia and all these wonderful members of the church describing the last days that they're gearing up for, what the, what the restoration was meant to prepare the world for. And you picture the blood draining from their faces. And it's almost like the Lord is like, oh, yeah, I'm getting a little deja vu. Uh, I mean, I've been around for both of these, okay? I'm from the start to the finish, Alpha and Omega, that's me. And you're looking about as troubled as my early apostles were. So let me tell you what I told them. Verse 45, I said unto them, be not troubled. Now, easier said than done. They were troubled, and I said, well, don't be. Well, how can I not be troubled by such a troubling world? Every sign of the time you've just described scares me to death. And you just say, be not troubled? And the Lord says, yeah, but that's not all I say. Keep reading the verse. I said unto them, be not troubled, for when all these things shall come to pass, all these scary signs of the times, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. There's that word again, the promises. The signs of the times, I mean, you think about it this way. Are these scary things happening? And we're like, yeah, I keep checking boxes and, well, checking the the news and then checking the box. Like, yes, these signs are all happening, the scary ones. Okay, well, if I have a good track record as far as prophecy is concerned regarding these troubling signs of the times, don't you know that I have an equally good track record for the prophecy of promises fulfilled. This goes back to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Yes, the dreadful side is, is true, but so is the great. 20 temples just announced in general conference, a lowered missionary age, and this wave especially of sister missionaries going out around the world. It's incredible. And to think what will happen when COVID-19 is behind us, and we're able to surge back into places that we haven't been able to go. I'm, I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for the present. Are there troubling things? Yes. But are there reassuring promises? Oh, you better believe it. And to, to understand that that's what the Lord is saying to them, don't be troubled by the negative signs of the times. Be reassured by the fulfillment of God's glorious promises In verse 36, when the light shall begin to break forth, cracking through the darkness itself, it shall be with them like unto a parable, which I will show you. And here's that parable in 37. Ye look and behold the fig trees, and ye see them with your eyes, and ye say when they begin to shoot forth, and their leaves are yet tender, that summer is now nigh at hand. Even so shall it be in that day when they shall see all these things. Then shall they know that the hour is nigh. So there's his one verse parable, the parable of the fig tree. Jesus taught similar things in the New Testament. When fig trees bear leaves, it's, it's the earth itself giving you a, a timetable about the approach of summer. Remember how we started this revelation that the summer is past and harvest has ended and our souls are not saved. Well, if you're seeing these signs of the times as the leaves on the fig tree, 
I even wonder if fig tree is supposed to help us think about the fall uh, with Adam and Eve as well, since they covered their nakedness with fig leaves. It's like, am I preparing for judgment? Because I know God can see me in my nakedness now. But hiding behind the fig leaves, hiding behind signs of the times, instead of coming out into the open and allowing the Lord to truly cover our nakedness with a coat of skins that only He can provide through self-sacrifice. Oh, learn from these fig leaves. Learn from the timetable and the signs of the times that are given. I actually, I did this once in a seminary class where I could sense that students were, oh, they're going to get nervous and troubled, is the word, troubled by these signs of the times. And so I held up a bunch of signs and asked them, does this trouble you? When you see a stop sign, do you get troubled? Well, no, you just know to put on the brake. When you see a, 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 a danger, falling rocks sign, does it trouble you? Well, maybe a little, but it prepares you for it, right? It, you, can, you can keep an eye out. When there's a sharp curve ahead and you see a sign for it, does the sign trouble you? No, it prepares you. And then I said, actually think about it this way. What's more troubling? The presence of the sign or the absence of one? Imagine if they didn't give you the heads up that there was a sharp curve ahead. Well, that would be troubling. <laughs> when I didn't slow down and then I hit the edge. If I didn't see the warning sign on a bottle that said poison, yeah, that skull and crossbones can be a troubling sign, but far more reassuring to see the sign and act accordingly than, as if there were, than, than to act as if there were no sign at all. Does that make sense? So be, be grateful for the presence of the signs of these times because they're letting us know it's, that's a fig leaf growing. The summer is, is approaching. Judgment is on its way. So what should we be doing? Verse 39, it shall come to pass that he that feareth me, and this is respect and awe and reverence, shall be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. I love that mental image of looking forth for the great day of the Lord. There's this anticipation, this I'm ready, I'm prepared. Now I'm just looking forward to it. I remember when I was a young father and my kids still believed in the song, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. That's such a tragedy when they outgrow that song because it's like the best primary song ever. But they knew when the time would come when I, that I'd come home from work. I had a set schedule in those days and I'd typically come home at the same day, at the same time every day. And I, I remember we had this, this little starter house that we lived in and it had this big window in the front right by the driveway. And our couch was right in front of it. And my favorite memory of those days was pulling up the driveway and seeing little faces in the window. As my oldest two were the only ones old enough to, to do this, but would be kneeling on the couch and looking out the window, so excited for daddy to come home. They were looking forth for the great day of daddy's coming. It meant the world to daddy. Now I think the only time they're, they're anxious for me to get home is if they're going to ask me for money or something. But to, to see our anticipation and our preparation for the coming of Christ. Verse 40, they shall see signs and wonders. These are the, on the good side of things. They shall be shown forth in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. And then there's this repetition of many of the signs of the times that were listed back in section 29. Verse 41, they shall behold blood and fire and vapors of smoke. We should be thinking plagues of Egypt with that list. We should be thinking uh, mists of darkness from Lehi's dream. 
Verse 42, before the day of the Lord shall come, the sun shall be darkened and the moon be turned into blood and the stars fall from heaven. We talked about that back in section 29. Verse 43, and the remnant shall be gathered unto this place. This place being Zion. This place being a place where temples will be. Remember, stand in holy places and be not moved. Well, the remnant are being gathered to temples all over the world. In verse 44, then they shall look for me. And behold, I will come. They shall see me in the clouds of heaven, clothed with power and great glory, with all the holy angels. And he that watches not for me shall be cut off. So just like we saw back in 32, same verse, your choice is yours. Are you ready or not? In 44, same thing. Do you want to be among those that are watching, looking for him, or those who are not watching that end up getting cut off? I remember when I was in high school, uh, our bishop was just, everybody loved our bishop. He was wonderful with the youth, uh, and he had this house that was right on this kind of main road through a neighborhood, and he had the best trees for toilet papering ever. So sorry, Bishop Patterson. Uh, and youth in our ward would like toilet paper the Pattersons like every weekend. I, I, it wasn't always me, okay? And those were, those were simpler days. I don't encourage anybody to toilet paper anymore. You, you end up getting, I mean, the love of man waxing cold and people taking up sword once again, one against another. It, it, to me, it's, it's too dangerous a day to go toilet papering anymore. But back in the 80s and 90s, you know, it was a different day. And poor Patterson's got toilet papered all the time. Poor Cody particularly, because the bishop's son, who was about our age, would always have to clean it up. Well, poor Cody was so sick and tired of cleaning up after the mess that he decided to watch. One fateful weekend, I don't know if it was a Friday or a Saturday night, but it was like, it's probably going to happen again. So he, he parked himself in the, in the front, kind of the living room, behind some shades and the drapery or whatever, and was watching out the window. I don't know how long he had to sit there, but he was going to be prepared. He that watches not for me shall be cut off. Well, that wasn't going to be him. He was looking forth. And sure enough, he caught the perpetrators. Now, thankfully, I wasn't in the group that, that weekend. I must have had something else to do. But I heard the story later, and it was hilarious. Because a bunch of buddies had borrowed one of their mom's minivans and, and loaded up with toilet paper and pulled it in front of the Patterson's house, and they were out going for it. And Cody's watching from inside, unbeknownst to them. And he's like, ah, oh, they're doing it again. Well, he timed it perfectly because as he looked out the window and saw them doing it, he also realized, ooh, they, they left the van running and the door open. And so he waited for it. And when the coast was clear, they were kind of doing trees on the side of the house. He sprinted out through the front, his front door, across the front yard, jumped in the minivan and drove away. And you picture all these poor teenagers like, that's my mom's van. I, 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 we're so dead. And Cody circled the neighborhood, came back with the doors locked, and the window cracked down just a touch and said, you get your van back when you clean up my yard. It's my favorite story of, of the toilet papering escapades of my youth. Here was someone who looked forward. He was not caught unaware. He was ready and waiting. And that was a glorious day for him. It can be for us as well. Now verse 45 but before the arm of the Lord shall fall, an angel shall sound his trump, and the saints that have slept shall come forth to meet me in the cloud, 
So here we see the resurrection of the just, also known as the morning of the first resurrection. In verse 46, wherefore, if ye have slept in peace, again, they're, they're facing all kinds of persecution. It could get worse. But if you have slept in peace, blessed are you. For as you now behold me and know that I am, even so shall ye come unto me, and your souls shall live. Your redemption shall be perfected, and the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth. Remember back in verse 17, we saw the three R's, resurrection, redemption, restoration. We see them again here in verse 46. Those who have slept in peace shall come forth, that your souls shall live. There's resurrection. Your redemption shall be perfected, forgiven of your sins. The saints will be gathered in from the four quarters of the earth. There's the restoration. And verse 47, then shall the arm of the Lord fall upon the nations. Remember back in section one where it talked about the arm of the Lord will be revealed and the sword of God will be bathed in heaven. That's what's in that, sword, in that hand, that arm. And as it's revealed, comes down upon the earth, God's word descending. Verse 48, then shall the Lord set his foot upon this mount, this mount of olives that he was talking to his apostles about. And it shall cleave in twain, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro, and the heavens also shall shake. This is the Lord descending upon the Mount of Olives, where the house of Israel has their back against the wall, and the, and the mountain splits in this giant earthquake, allowing for a retreat. My back isn't against the wall. I can be saved by the Savior, who has made a way for me to escape. That's what the Lord always does, gives us a chance to escape the consequences of our sin to retreat and regroup, and best of all, repent, so that we can do better. Verse 49, the Lord shall utter his voice, and all the ends of the earth shall hear it, and the nations of the earth shall mourn, and they that have laughed shall see their folly. Now do you see why he would mention the ending of that? They that have laughed, they have been making a mockery of the restored gospel. They have turned Latter-day Saints into a laughing stock. But someday those who have laughed will see their own folly, and their laughter will turn to mourning. In verse 50, calamity shall cover the mocker, and the scorner shall be consumed. And they that have watched for iniquity shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. What are we watching for? Watching for the coming of Christ or watching for iniquity? Remember, if the love of man waxes cold, charity thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity. Charity isn't looking for and watching for iniquity. It's watching how to stay away from it and how to keep other people away from it as well. And mockers and scorners, no wonder the great and spacious building which has been holding them all eventually collapses, and great is the fall thereof. In verse 51, Then shall the Jews look upon me and say, What are these wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? This is such a powerful moment of recognition. As the house of Israel, and please don't just think of ancient or modern Judaism. Think of all the people whom I mean, in some ways, we're all house of Israel because we all accepted God's plan in pre-mortality and we're willing to come to earth. It's just some have been reminded of that and others have not yet been. 
But to think of all of us backs against the wall and the Savior comes to make a way for our escape. Resurrection, redemption, restoration, the three R's apply to all of us. But when we finally recognize who it is that has saved us, and in that moment of recognition, we ask, what are these wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? What happened to you? Our deliverer, our savior. And notice the Lord's response in verse 52. This is one of my all-time favorite examples of what I call the grammar of God. Throughout these, the, all the study that we've done, you've probably noticed that I, I kind of geek out about grammar. And my grandpa was a high school English teacher, and he'd always correct my grammar. Uh, so once I understood the parts of speech and how you're supposed to speak, well, uh, thank you, grandpa. Okay? And we've talked about verbs and nouns and adjectives and adverbs and prepositions and numbers of, of you know, plurals and singulars. And it's amazing how, much, how many lessons can, you can find in a, in a single part of speech. Well, verse 52 is, in my opinion, the most beautiful example of the passive voice you'll ever see in scripture. Now, if you're anything like me from high school, the passive voice was a big no-no. Uh, anytime you use it, you get the, the red ink out, right? Uh, which is sad, because sometimes the passive voice is used for a purpose. You see, the active voice is preferred because it's, you're focusing on the, the person and the action that they're performing. The problem with the passive voice, the reason why English teachers typically mark it, uh, mark it off, is because, well, no, you're shifting the attention away from the active uh, participant. And now it's just, instead of someone doing something, it's just something is being done. And, and again, you've taken your eye off, off the, the, the protagonist. Well, what if that's your goal? What if you're more focused on the, the receiver of the action than the doer of it? What if I have a purpose behind my passive voice? Now, you don't have to be a grammarian to be an expert in passive voice because we all used it to, to well, we're experts at passive voice when it helps us avoid the blame for something we've done. I'll give you an example. Uh, when you come home and your children are, are crying or one of them's crying and you ask, well, what happened? And the older sibling that never confesses their sin and says, well, I hit my brother. Instead, it's, um, he got hurt. He got hurt. Oh, that's passive voice. There's no blame going around. Or you come home and there's a broken lamp or something. And you're like, what, what happened to the lamp? And you don't say, oh, I broke the lamp. You, you want to avoid active voice like the plague. You just say, it, it got broken. Uh, and don't think this is just children trying to get out of trouble. Government uses it all the time. Congress doesn't say, we decided to raise your taxes. They just say, taxes have been raised. And kind of shrug their shoulders. It's the weirdest thing. I have no idea how that happened. They just have been raised. Uh, Aaron, brother of Moses, is like the patron saint of the passive voice to get out of, uh, out of a jam. Because when he uh, crafts the golden calf, Remember Moses is up on the mountain and he comes down and there's this golden calf. And he goes to Aaron and he's like, what, what happened? In fact, he even says, what did they do to you? What, what did they threaten you with? Thinking they must have put your life on the line to convince you to do something so horrid to this act of idolatry. Well, you read the story and all they did was ask, can you make us a, gold, a golden calf? He's all, oh yeah, sure, why not? But when Aaron, it's time to fess up to Moses. It's hilarious the way he does it. He doesn't take responsibility for his actions and say, well, they asked and I did. It, was, it wasn't active voice at all. 
he just describes like, it's the weirdest thing. I took the gold and the earrings and the jewels and stuff and melted it down into the fire and out came this golden calf. Hmm, weirdest thing. You're like, come on, golden calves don't just come out. They have to be made. But the point I'm trying to make with this grammar lesson is active voice establishes blame or guilt. Passive voice, there's no finger pointing. Something just happened. Well, notice how the Lord is using the passive voice here in verse 52. And it is one of the most humble, meek, generous, merciful things I've ever heard the Savior say. In 51, when the Jews come, and that's us included, saying, what happened to you? Jesus doesn't say, well, your ancestors killed me. The, the marks in my hands and feet are evidence of what your ancestors did. Or in our case, what you did to me, since we're all guilty of the crucifixion. Instead, the Lord responds in this way in verse 52. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, for I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. All three of those verb constructions are in the passive voice. He doesn't say, your forefathers wounded me, and they lifted me up, and they crucified me. You did this to me. No active voice, no pointing of the finger. Instead, he simply says, I got hurt. I was wounded. Uh, in the house of my friends. Uh, no blame. No pointing of fingers. I was crucified. I was lifted up. This is what happened to me. But I'm not blaming anyone. This is the same advocate with the Father that we met at the beginning of this section. Who's saying, don't look at them. Don't seek, seek blame. Don't search out guilt. Look at innocence. And that innocence can then be spread to even the guilty parties. The way he says in verse 53, what, what response does he get in this merciful, passive voice? Then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king. There's an active voice construction at the end. But it's their realization. Oh no, we have done that. We persecuted our king. We have committed a, a iniquity. But in that recognition, instead of the Lord shaming us by pointing the finger and guilting us, it's we recognize our own failure, our own iniquity. And with a broken heart and contrite spirit, we desire to change. With that change of heart, then verse 54 can happen. Then shall the heathen nations be redeemed. And they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection. It shall be tolerable for them. Are we sensing resurrection and redemption and restoration? It's all happening. We get to be a part of it. Verse 55, Satan shall be bound, that he shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men. There's a promise that I look forward to the fulfillment of. There's the millennial reign. Verse 56, at that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled, which I spake concerning the ten virgins. Think about it this way, that amazing parable. 
is found in Matthew chapter 25, which comes right after Matthew 24, which is signs of the time central, which comes after Matthew 23, the hen gathering her chickens under her wings. You see what the Lord is trying to teach in that great Olivet Discourse? What he's trying to remind them of here in section 45? All ten virgins were invited. They were aware. They, the, Lord, uh, the, the bridegroom wanted them to come. These are church members. These are disciples. But will you be wise or foolish? The choice is yours. Verse 57, they that are wise and have received the truth, there's no false perception that's interfering with reception. Those who have received the truth have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. There's light. There's standard. There's messenger. And have not been deceived. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. That's about as good a description of a wise virgin as you can get in the scriptures. Section 45, verse 57. Are you receiving truth? Drop of oil by drop of oil. Are you taking the Holy Spirit as your guide? You see why I can't share my oil with you and you can't share it with me? It's not every man for himself. Not that at all. We're trying to be light and messenger and standard for one another. We're trying to help. We're pointing out where the oil is to be found. But acquiring it, receiving truth, letting the Spirit guide you, not being deceived. It's actually interesting if you compare Matthew 24 with Joseph Smith Matthew, the, the Joseph Smith translation version of it. One of the things that shows up more in the inspired version and the original King James is the word deception. I think like four or five times in Joseph Smith Matthew it appears. To me, we talk about signs of the times with earthquakes in diverse places and wars and rumors of wars and sun and moon and stars and all those other things. But to me, the defining sign of the time is deception. As the adversary tries to fool wise virgins into becoming foolish ones, to to stop gaining more oil or just to get rid of the oil you already have. It's never a static stockpile. But deception shows up all the time. Also, the word elect keeps showing up in Joseph Smith Matthew. And the word covenant. The three come together a few times where the, the challenge of these last days is the deception of the very elect according to the covenant. You feel a, a bullseye, some crosshairs on you? Because that's who the adversary is taking aim at. The elect according to the covenant. And how is he going to bring you away? By deceiving you. Now there is one verse in, in Joseph Smith Matthew, verse 37, where he says, Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. See how that ties into verse 57 here? To not be deceived, you've got to treasure up the word. Receive the truth. Take the spirit as your guide. Treasure it. This isn't skimming through the scriptures. It is feasting upon the words of Christ. So that as you hear falsehood and lies and foolish stories, all those things that Joseph Smith described that were happening to the saints in that time period, as you stumble across some piece of anti-Mormonism on the internet or hear some statement that troubles and shakes your faith, have you treasured up the word sufficiently to, to sense the difference between light and darkness, truth and error? Can you discern between wisdom, the Lord's wisdom, wise virgins, let us reason together, I'll give you my wisdom, or the foolishness of the world? As I see more and more Latter-day Saints struggling in their faith and, and leaving the church, it breaks my heart. But at the same time, it 
confirms my faith that this is exactly what the Lord said would be happening in the last days. Shaking of faith, earthquakes in diverse places, men's hearts failing them with all the faith that was supposed to keep them going, and foolish virgins running out of oil, being deceived to pour it out themselves. Even the elect according to the covenant. We have to be wiser than that. If we are and can abide the day, then look at verse 58. And boy, would I love to live for this. The earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance. A renewed earth, having received its paradisical glory, as, section, as Article of Faith 10 tells us. And they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. Can you imagine being a parent during the millennium? Talk about a great time to raise kids. They'll grow up without sin unto salvation? Man, they ask, hey, my, can I go hang out with my friends? Sure. What are you going to do wrong? Nothing. Come back whenever. Uh, I mean, ra raising kids in the millennial reign, it doesn't get any better than that. Because 59, the Lord shall be in our midst. His glory shall be upon us. He will be our king and our lawgiver. Oh, hasten the day. Come quickly. You've kept, you keep saying that you will. Please help us prepare the earth so that that can happen. Verse 16, Now behold, I say unto you, it shall not be given unto you to know any further concerning this chapter until the New Testament be translated, and in it all these things shall be made known. Wherefore I give unto you that ye may now translate it, that ye may be prepared for the things to come. Now, it's interesting that the Lord kind of steps out of the, the story really quick and kind of stares into the camera and says, Oh, by the way, Joseph, uh, I know we're talking about Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's, it's better than you even imagine. What I'm teaching you here in section 45 is going to come out even more loud and clear when you, find, when you get the revealed, inspired version of Matthew 24. I know you're working hard on the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament. You started with Genesis and the book of Moses comes forth from that amazing stuff. But why don't you stop where you are in the Old Testament? You can come back to it. I, I want you to complete the JST. But jump to the New Testament and start working there. I actually love when I have experiences like that. When I'm studying something in Scripture and the Spirit's like, you know, I actually need you to study over here instead. That happened to me right before I moved to the Bible Belt. It was really interesting. It was, uh, I was starting a new year of, uh, of life, and I wanted a new year of Scripture study. And I thought, what do I want to study this time? And I thought, well, let's do Book of Mormon, like always. And I started, and I just felt like, no, I shouldn't be reading the Book of Mormon right now, which is an odd thing to, to realize. There's somewhere else in the Scriptures that the Lord wants me to be. Well, it's been a while since I really dug into the Old Testament. Let me do that. So I jumped into the Old, and after a day or two of it, I just, no, this isn't, this isn't where I should be. Well, let's do New Testament. So I started with Matthew and began reading a little bit. And then it still was like, no, I'm still missing the point. Heavenly Father, what should I be studying? And I had a clear impression, letters of Paul. Go read, study the letters of Paul again. And I jumped into Romans and, and just immersed myself. And it just felt like this is exactly where I need to be. And like a week or two later, I get the phone call. Hey, we want you to move to Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm like, ah, okay, Bible Belt, surrounded by wonderful evangelicals who know the letters of Paul like nobody else I know. Thanks for the head start. Uh, I, can, I can learn it to speak their language. And it was a great experience. So here the Lord is saying, Joseph, stop, work on the, the JST of the Old Testament. 
go and shift over to JST of the New Testament because there are some amazing things I want to make known unto you, especially about these signs of the times. When you get to Matthew 24, buckle up. It's going to be great. And then verse 62 to kind of dramatize that, but also to speak of this whole second coming, signs of the times, promises being fulfilled, so don't get troubled. I love verse 62. So short, so straightforward. Verily I say unto you that great things await you. Can you let that reassurance sink into your soul the next time you start feeling troubled about the days in which we live? Great things await us. And we're seeing that. We get to participate in this. This is something that all these ancient prophets were looking forward to. Strangers and pilgrims wanting promises to be fulfilled someday. Well, they're being fulfilled all around us and yet will be fulfilled even more. I think it was Elder Maxwell that once said, all the easy things have already been done in the kingdom. So from here on out, it's nothing but high adventure. (laughs) Bring on the adventure. Great things await us. And in verse 63, he says, Ye hear of wars in foreign lands, but behold, I say unto you, they are nigh, even at your doors, and not many years hence ye shall hear of wars in your own lands. Remember we saw that back in section 38? You hear about wars and things elsewhere, but you have no idea what's going on in the heart of men all around you. The enemy in secret chambers seeking your destruction. The civil war is only 30 years away for these saints. Verse 64, wherefore? So, I love whenever a verse begins with wherefore, you have to go back a verse at least and see what he's talking about. No one ever comes up to you and starts a conversation with the word wherefore. Okay? You, know, you want to see somebody confused? Try it. Go up to them and say, wherefore? And they'll be like, did I miss something? Well, evidently. Wherefore means consequently. As a result of what I've just said, wherefore, here's what comes next. So in the context of 63, wars in foreign lands, wars right here, signs of the times taking place, 64, wherefore, consequently, I the Lord have said, gather ye out from the eastern lands, assemble ye yourselves together. Ye elders of my church, go ye forth into the western countries. Call upon the inhabitants to repent. And inasmuch as they do repent, build up churches unto me. Because of the signs of the times, because of the chaotic time period that we live in, we've got to gather. We need to assemble. We need to repent and build up the church. It's what's preparing the world for these great things that await us. Verse 65, with one heart and with one mind. Ooh, that should think, make us think about Zion. Those are the first two uh, qualifying descriptions of it, right? One heart, one mind, dwell in righteousness, no poor among us. Oh yeah, that's why we're trying to build Zion. That's why we're trying to live the conse- law of consecration. That's why we're trying to gather together in Kirtland to be able to build a temple. With one heart and one mind, gather up your riches, no poor among you, that ye may purchase an inheritance which shall hereafter be appointed unto you. Remember that was one of the purposes of the law of consecration? To be able to buy land for the public benefit of the church, to be able to build a new Jerusalem, to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. Verse 66, it shall be called the new Jerusalem. And how does he define it? A land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. There's no better description of Zion a place of peace? So compare, compare the New Jerusalem to the outside world that we're seeing. Compare the standing in holy places and not being moved to the 
earthquakes in, in all the other diverse places. Does peace sound like a better option than everyone taking up swords against their neighbor and the love of man waxing cold? Does refuge sound like a good... It's like, I'm on home base. As a kid, we used to play tag all the time, and there's just such a feeling of relief when you make it to your refuge. I'm on base. A place of safety for the saints. Oh, may the promises be fulfilled. So we have a place of safety to seek refuge in. Interesting, back to that strangers and pilgrims. What was another definition of that? Another translation? Refugees. Well, if I'm a refugee in this wicked world, then please bring me to a place of refuge. The temple, the new Jerusalem. Verse 67, the glory of the Lord shall be there and the terror of the Lord also shall be there insomuch that the wicked will not come into it and it shall be called Zion. It's interesting what you're afraid of. We talk about the war on terror and terrorists, rumors of wars, right? But where does this terror lie? The, the righteous may be scared of the wicked, but in a weird way, the wicked are scared of the righteous. There's a terror of the Lord, an awe, uh, a, a sense of I'm not worthy of his presence. In verse 68, it shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. Wow, even if you don't believe, if you want safety, then come and belong. Clayton Christensen talked about that, the difference of why I believe and why I belong. And he said, hey, even if you don't believe, come and belong. There's real Christianity here. People serving one another and lifting one another. If you don't want to have to take up sword against neighbor, if, you ju if you're looking for peace and safety and refuge, here it is. In fact, it reminds me of the way the book of Abraham begins. Remember Abraham ch chapter 1, right at the start? And he says, you know, I'm facing all kinds of persecution and opposition from the idolaters all around me, including my father who's trying to sacrifice me to false gods. But knowing that there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought the blessings of the fathers and the right whereby it could be ordained to administer the same. I want these blessings for me. I want to be able to spread these blessings to everybody else. And what were the things he was looking for? Greater happiness and peace and rest. Doesn't it sound like this description of the new Jerusalem, of coming in among a Zion people? Are you tired of running because you're afraid of death overcoming you? Are you afraid of, of always being on your guard against your neighbors taking up their sword? And again, it doesn't have to be a literal, physical one, but are you afraid of people's dishonesty or lack of integrity? Why do we have to always keep our doors locked and our bikes chained up and, and change computer passwords every couple of months? I can't remember any of them. Wouldn't you want to live in a place of peace and refuge and safety? Don't you want... Talk about a golden question to ask people. Do you want greater happiness and peace and rest? Are you interested in safety and refuge and peace? Because there is a place. There, in fact, there are places all over the world. Not just one centralized New Jerusalem, but Zion in the heart of faithful saints everywhere you look. In verse 69 when he says, There shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. The only ones. Remember the Lord said that earlier when he said that that's how you can spot somebody ready for the fullness of the gospel? 
none doeth good save those who are prepared for the fullness? You, want, you don't want to be at war with each other? Then come to the only place of peace left. Gather. And gather out of every nation under heaven. In fact, as time went on, we'll learn this later in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 97, where we see that Zion is a, a, a lifestyle as much as it is a location. That it's your attitude and your approach to life, not just your physical address. And so, yes, there's, there will be a gathering, a new Jerusalem in Independence, Missouri. But anywhere the righteous can gather, why do you think we're building temples all over the world, right? These little mini Zions everywhere the faithful can gather for safety and peace and refuge. Out of every nation and now within every nation. Faithful gatherings of righteous saints. I was blown away by the Sunday morning session, Easter morning, for this April 2021 General Conference, where by design, under the direction of the Lord's prophet, the nations gathered together, where it had hymns by a choir from Mexico and another choir from South Korea. I am a child of God, sung by international choirs. Where I, I wish it would have listed where they all came from. But to see so many groups of singers from so many different cultures and ethnicities and all over the world, singing the, the true fact that all of us are children of the same loving Father in heaven. And then to hear talks and prayers from disciples of Christ from the four corners of the earth, every inhabited continent. Disciples from Brazil, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Zimbabwe, Portugal, Fiji, Hong Kong, Philippines, Australia, Mexico. It was beautiful. It was proof that God is not colorblind. He is color blessed and just sees all of his children from every place, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people gathering into, out of every nation, gathering into the fold of God. It's quite the assembly of chickens under the hen's wing. It's an incredible thing to be a part of. For the rest of this revelation, he describes this Zion, this new Jerusalem that you and I get to be a part of now, even as we're building it for, for the future and yet people yet to come. For great things await us. In verse 70, it shall be said among the wicked, let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. Interesting, they, they still don't want to join us. They'd rather fight us, but they're scared to do even that. There, there's a certain hard-heartedness here that I, I will not join them. I don't want to be a part of it. But at the same time, man, I can't help but respect them. If that's among the wicked in 70, 71, it's among the righteous. It shall come to pass that the righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations and shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy. And like I just said, that hymn, I am a child of God, from all those... I mean, that was it. There, there they were, singing with songs of everlasting joy as they were coming to Zion. Verse 72, Now I say unto you, keep these things from going abroad unto the world, until it is expedient in me, that ye may accomplish this work in the eyes of the people, and in the eyes of your enemies, that they may not know your works until ye have accomplished the thing which I have commanded you. That's an interesting approach. It's almost like the Lord is like, hey, can we, don't spoil the surprise. Okay, uh, let's get, let's be ready to come forth out of the wilderness, clear as the sun and fair as the moon and terrible as an army with banners. 
but there's going to be a lot of required preparation behind the scenes. You're not ready for the world to really look at you. Okay, the house isn't completely cleaned up for the point that we're, we're welcoming the neighbors in. So work on these things. Prepare yourself. Stand in holy places. In fact, build a holy place to stand in, will you? Let's get a temple built here in Ohio. Let's get saints gathering in independence. Let's build this new Jerusalem. And when we're ready, the world will know. Verse 73, that when they shall know it, that they may consider these things. Remember, reception is based on perception. And what will they think of us when they finally know these things? Will they consider them? Will they have an open enough heart because it's, it can't be denied? Look at what the Latter-day Saints are doing. Their, their peace, the refuge, the safety, the kindness, the, the Christianity that is coming out of Latter-day Saint homes. Are we changing people's perceptions one mind and one heart at a time so that they'll actually give us a second thought, that they'll consider these things. It's like the ads that the church took out in the playbill for the Book of Mormon musical. It's like, okay, now that you've made fun of us, are you ready to, to hear the real thing? Now that you've seen the musical Book of Mormon, are you ready to read the book? Because the book is always better. And those who did that those that were willing to consider in those days as well as in ours, oh, their, once their perception changed and they opened themselves up to the reality, wow, reception often follows. The chapter then ends, 74 and 75, when the Lord shall appear, he shall be terrible unto them. That fear may seize upon them and they shall stand afar off and tremble. That's why we try to help them repent before so it can be a great day instead of a dreadful one. And all nations shall be afraid because of the terror of the Lord and the power of his might. Even so, amen. For those unprepared, this revelation does seem to end on kind of a bad note. And it's up to us to make sure that the, that the people that those two verses apply to are very small in number. There's an interesting verse in Isaiah where he says, They shall go into the holes of the rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. You see what Isaiah is describing? Same kinds of things in this fear. And, I, and I'm not prepared for the coming of Christ. I'm not ready for the summer to end and harvest to come and judgment to be passed. I'm scared of it. Remember, this was Alma's, the younger's experience. I was so scared of having to face my maker that I would have preferred to climb under a mountain somewhere. That's how he describes it. I wanted to call the rocks to cover me from the all-seeing eye of God. That's Isaiah's phrase. That he, they wanted to go and hide themselves in the holes of the rocks because of their fear of the Lord. But because of that, that phrase, take that verse from Isaiah 2 and connect it to the beautiful verse in Jeremiah 16. Where are the proud and wicked hiding? In the holes of the rocks. Well, in Jeremiah 16, 16, fishers and hunters of men. It says he starts with fishermen because they can throw out the nets and bring in a boatload, right? Uh, and often in the early days of the church, people seem to stream into the kingdom of God. I wonder if, if how many fishing days we still have ahead or if we're making the transition to hunting because hunting, the way it's described in Jeremiah, I will send for many fishers and they will fish them and then I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them. And where? 
This isn't casting nets and bringing in a boat full. This is searching in the mountains and the hills and in the holes of the rocks. That's how Jeremiah describes it. So connect Jeremiah and Isaiah. Connect Doctrine and Covenants 45. And what do we see? The wicked, the proud, who are hiding from God out of fear of him. Go find them and reassure them. P pull away the mountain. Move it through your faith. And find those that are afraid of God when they should be reassured by his mercy. As President Nelson just invited us, may we have the faith to move mountains, especially the ones that the unprepared are calling upon themselves or hiding under out of fear of a Lord that was never meant to be fearful. This is our advocate with the Father. This is the Lord of the passive voice. This is the builder of the new Jerusalem himself. He is safety and refuge and peace. And if we can reach out to those who are hiding from him with words of reassurance, if we can be light and standard and messenger of the good news for them, then perhaps we can coax them out of the holes in the rocks and help them stand with us in holy places, no longer troubled by these troubling days, but resting assured in the promises that God has made and the promises that he will keep. For great things await us.